Is there any pain greater than stepping on a Lego? Jack, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> but in the moment, it does not feel that way. The pain is especially shocking when you least expect it. If I'm trying to walk through my son's playroom, it's not so surprising that that might happen. However, it's a terrible surprise when I get up off the couch to get a drink and step on one. Legos don't belong in the living room. But as many parents and relatives painfully know, they sure do end up there. Yes, it can be painful when things show up where they aren't supposed to be. Order is turned to chaos. Design is destroyed and purpose foiled. The situation begs for correction for intervention, for a remedy. It's just this kind of situation that Jesus encounters when he comes to the temple in Jerusalem. Now you'll recall as we started this chapter that Jesus and his disciples had made their way from Jericho to the Mount of Olives and there Jesus got a couple of donkeys to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this was all to fulfill the prophecy given in Zechariah 9 that, that uh, Israel's Messiah would enter the city in just this fashion. And he was greeted appropriately by the people with cries of Hosanna. That means, save us, son of David. Um, so it's full of messianic implications. And Matthew, in giving us this account, wants to draw a strong connection. And so... He moves us straight from Jesus' entry into the temple. Now, um, yeah, I've got the Mount of Olives there, the Temple Mount, and there's a rendering of the temple. Now, again, the action seems to go directly to um, from this entry into the temple. But when we, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, um, we actually learn that while Jesus does eventually end up in the temple and overturns the tables and all of this, um, he takes his time in actually making this louder entrance into the temple. Mark 11, 11 uh, says that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And since he was going out to Bethany, that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Um, it's likely that he was staying there with the disciples. Um, because it was the week of Passover, the city was filled with lots of people, so they probably had to find lodging outside the city. And we see in Luke 21 it being suggested that's what exactly what Jesus would do. He'd go into the city during the day, and then he'd leave the city at night. Um, the crowds during passive, Passover week were um, so huge, they were probably around 300,000 to 400,000 people. Now, the thing that I think is important about um, pointing out this fact that Jesus went into the temple and kind of looked things over and then went back out and then came the next day is that 
What Jesus does here in these verses is not done on an impulse. It's well thought out. He looks at the situation, he takes stock of what's going on, and then he comes back to offer his very vivid rebuke. Now, some of you might be wondering why it is that you know, the, these money changers and these doves are set up in the temple. Well, part of the reason why you might have some exchange of money going on in the temple is that during this week of Passover, you do have people coming from all these different nations, and they may be offering their temple tax there. Um, but primarily, the reason why you would need to have the exchange of money is because these people need to buy off animals to offer and sacrifice at the temple. And if any of you have gone traveled abroad, you'll know that if you go to a foreign country, typically you have to exchange your currency. The American dollar is accepted in many places, but very often you do have to make that exchange. And we understand it would be the reverse here too. Someone, uh, if they showed up from Europe, wouldn't be able to go to Target and hand the cashier a euro. They need to get that changed into a dollar bill. Um, so the same thing is going on here, and um, they're getting the money changed over into Tyrian coinage. That was the common coin of the temple. Um, so we wonder, you know, why is Jesus turning over the tables here? Seems like this is kind of a necessary function. You've got to sell these animals to be sacrificed. They even are selling animals for the poor, the doves. Um, and we know that Jesus' own parents had to buy doves when they offered sacrifices because they couldn't afford a larger animal to sacrifice. Seems like maybe something good is actually perhaps going on here. But that good appearance rubs off when we become aware of some of the finer details of the temple structure. When you look inside the temple, you'll notice that you have this kind of inner sanctuary here with these inner courts, and then, of course, you have the Holy of Holies in here. But then you also have this out, large outer court. And this was a court that the Gentiles were supposed to be able to enter into. Um, they weren't allowed to enter into the inner sanctuary. And this was um, based on what the prophet Ezekiel had to say in uh, Chapter 44, verse 9, he says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. Um, and we'll get a little bit, as we go along, we'll get into a little bit more detail about why those sorts of divisions are being made. But the point is, is that the Gentiles, these foreigners, they can't go all the way in. Um, and yet, they are allowed in this outer court. But the problem is, is where they've set up shop for this market and selling animals and exchanging currency is in this whole area. And even while God has put some limits on how far the, how close the Gentiles can approach him in the Old Testament, we also see in the prophets a desire that people of all nations would come to God. We look at Isaiah 56. 
looking at verses 3 through 8, and I've bolded the verses that are particularly relevant to our consideration here of those um, who are foreigners. There says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And then we'll jump down to verse 6. And it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. A profound prophecy. What we would expect from the Old Testament would be just sole concern about the people of Israel. And, here, and yet here God is indicating his desire to bring people of all nations to himself. So that not only is he interested in drawing the Jewish exiles to him who have been spread to far countries, but he's interested in others besides them. He wants them to come up on his holy mountain. He wants his temple to be a house of prayer. Now, consider God's desire that his temple would be a house of prayer against this scene that is playing out in which you have this market basically being opened up in the court of the Gentiles. Those leaders of the temple infrastructure are consumed with the things that need to be done. Obviously, yeah, people need to be able to exchange coin and purchase these animals, but they are so, been, become so consumed with what needs to be done that they've forgotten why they're doing all this in the first place. The reason why they're doing all this is in order that God might be worshipped. And yet their solution to this is inhibiting the worship of God because it's squeezing the non-Jews out. I mean, imagine trying to worship God in the middle of Walmart on a Black Friday. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done. It can, but it's not, the, it's not a conducive situation. And that's the kind of scene that's being played out here. Likewise, you know, we see that, yes, this setup of being able to exchange is necessary, but the necessity of the situation also introduces opportunity for some duplicity. Um, the people operating these markets are kind of turning it into a bit of a business venture. And we get this sense from the fact that Jesus has called them out, saying that you've turned this in, into a den of robbers. You've turned the temple of God into a den of robbers. And this is recalling uh, the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7.11. He says, Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And in the context of that passage, uh, what God has also been watching is just the broader corruption of the people, including the mistreatment of the foreigners in Israel. So Jesus has perceived this corruption in this temple, the fact that 
they're really interrupting the purpose of God's temple to be a house of prayer. And he showed up to make an intervention. And in so doing, he's actually fulfilling the prophetic word that was given in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4. There it's promised, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Huh. You know, Jesus is making his triumphal entry. Suddenly he's in the temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. When Jesus enters the table, enters the temple and starts turning over these tables and letting the doves go and all of this, He's giving the temple a good scrub down, like with a bar of soap. He's coming in like a blazing fire to purge out the impurities. Now, of course, you know, this one-time intervention doesn't solve all the problems, but it's symbolic. It's symbolic of what Jesus has come to do. He's come in order that we might be restored as worshipers of God to bring offerings of righteousness unto God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling messianic expectations, but he's also exhibiting a sort of priestly concern for God's temple. And this matches that expectation that we find in Zechariah 6, 12-13 when it talks about the Messiah. It says, Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch. We know that refers to the one who's coming from the stump of Jesse, the promised son of David. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. This is what we see Jesus doing. We've, we, we mentioned last week about how the people called Jesus a prophet. And it's certainly a, a true title to ascribe to him, that he's a prophet. We also know that he's a king, he's the Messiah, and he's also a priest. And that's going to be unveiled all the more as we draw to the cross and he offers himself on the cross. And then he ascends into the heavenly temple and makes intervention on our behalf. He's all three of these things. He's prophet, priest, and king. And this is just another indication of who he is, these actions that he's taking here in the temple and cleansing it. Now, Matthew mentions something else here that is easily overlooked. He says that the blind and lame came into the temple and he healed them. Our attention is drawn to the fact that when we move on to verses 15 and 17, that we find that the priests are really mad and they're really mad because of primarily two things. One being these wonderful things that he did, including healing these people. And the second is 
the praise that the children are offering to Jesus and singing Hosanna to the son of David. Now we ask, what's the big deal in Jesus healing these people in the temple? We've seen him heal people countless times before across his ministry. Well, to understand the kind of the big deal here, we have to dig again into the background that we gain from the Old Testament as far as who is supposed to be entering the temple and who is not supposed to be entering the temple. Now, Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17 indicates that all the men of Israel are supposed to come to the temple to make offering. Now, this wasn't inclusive of the Gentiles, the foreigners in Israel. They could go to that outer court. Um, but this was the expectation of Jewish men. Um, now, traditionally, though, there has been a some qualification on that expectation. This tradition said that anyone with a disease or physical disability was not allowed to enter into the precincts of the temple. And this tradition originates from two sources in Scripture. The first is from Leviticus 21, uh, 16 through 24. Leviticus 21, verses 16 through 24. Where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, or who has any eye defect, or has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to the offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God, as well as the holy food. Yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar, and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. Now, this instruction here is being applied to the priesthood. It's not being applied to the broader populace. But what's traditionally occurred is that this instruction here has become extended to the rest of the Jewish people so that no one who, was ha who had any kind of physical defect or disease was allowed to enter into the temple. Now, I imagine you're wondering, why is it that God makes this kind of division and saying that if you have any of these defects going on, you can't come before him? Well, we could do a whole study on this, but I'm going to make this... I'm going to give you the most simple account possible. And the idea is this, is that in the Old Testament, God is trying to make clear to the people the nature of his being, that he is a holy God, that he is a righteous God, that he is a God of life, that he is a God of order. And in order to make that clear, he's basically using the temple structure as a grand physical illustration. You know, in 21st century America, we're, we're very much a text people. We just, we read and we get our meaning from there. 
But you've got to consider, not everyone had these texts available at their hands, even while they heard them spoke. What was most impactful for them is that they saw this actually illustrated for them, the holiness of God and the use of space and demonstrating God is present here in the temple. And what does it mean if we cannot approach him? It must mean that he is a holy God. He is holy other. And so God is making this division in order to make clear who he is and who we are in order to communicate to us that we have a problem. (laughs) That we aren't who we are supposed to be. And the kind of a more kind of, uh, I guess, kind of funny way of illustrating this kind of came to mind. I thought of this meme, and some of you, especially those who are younger, have probably seen this before. You've seen this meme by Casey Green, which says, this is fine. Now, this is supposed to illustrate, you know, a person in a situation where there's a bunch of things going on and kind of sarcastically saying, like, this is fine. Now, I think th- what this is helpful for illustrating is the fact that obviously this isn't fine. Fire does not belong in the living room. Fire does not belong around the dog. And in the same way, what God is illustrating by making these divisions is saying that this is not fine. Death is not fine. Disease is not fine. Sin is not fine. And if he just allowed those things to just be like, oh yeah, just do whatever you want, come however you want, before my presence, that would indicate to the people that nothing is amiss. God is trying to tell the people things are really messed up. Now, the other source for this tradition, in which the people who were blind and lame and had other disabilities weren't allowed to come in, is taken from 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 8. And this comes, I'll just summarize this. Basically, when... David was coming to Jerusalem. Um, He had to conquer the city. He was held by these people called the Jebusites. And they basically mocked him by saying, blind and lame people on the walls could keep you back. (laughs) Like, like you can't possibly conquer us. And David does conquer the city. And by the end, it it says that... uh, when we get to verse 8, it says, On that day David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Now the question in here is, in saying that the blind and lame will not enter the palace, is David being literal here and saying that the blind and lame shouldn't be allowed into the palace? Or is he saying that the Jebusites aren't allowed into the palace? Because... They've kind of taken for themselves this this moniker of blind and lame because they said, we could put those people up on the wall to resist you and you wouldn't be able to make it in. So there's that question there. And the other question is, is whether this word palace is properly understood as God's temple. Now in the Greek Septuagint, it was rendered the house of the Lord. But as you see here in the NIV translation, it's translated as palace. So... I include this because this is part of the tradition behind people being prohibited from coming into the temple. But the real cornerstone text, I think, for understanding why um, 
people weren't allowed to come in is because of that passage in Leviticus 21, be extended to all people, that no impurity or defect was going to be allowed to come before God's presence. So what's Jesus doing here? After all that, what's Jesus doing here? What Jesus is doing here and inviting these people to come to him in the temple and healing them is he's upending this prohibition. Now, the religious authorities would be concerned that the, by these people entering into the precincts of the temple that they're defying the temple some way by their defect. And yet they're not so concerned about the defilement that could, become, that could come from running a market in the temple. So we see a little bit of a tension here in terms of the concerns of the religious authorities. Jesus has been more concerned about the market. He clears that out, but he invites the blind and lame in because he has no concerns of them being defiling the temple because he's going to be the one who makes them whole. This is the big thing that changes with Jesus. We see across his ministry, like when a leper confronts Jesus. Most people are afraid of the leper making someone diseased and unclean. Jesus isn't afraid. He says, come to me touches them, heals him. Jesus is this divine antiseptic. And what he's proving here is that he's really the turning point in human history in terms of our relationship with God. That now those who are once put at a distance in order to illustrate this division and the problem going on with humanity, that wall is being broken down because Christ has come to heal and to save. And if we go back to Isaiah 56, we'll notice that this promise extends to those that um, had some kind of physical defect because it speaks to those who are eunuchs. And just reading the bold, it says, And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So again and again we see that it's God's intent to bring all people to himself. And so in response you have these children seeing all these wonderful things going on, taking up the chant of the crowds, singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, don't you hear what these kids are singing? Basically implying, aren't you going to scold them for singing these things? This isn't the first time that they've told Jesus to start scolding people. In Luke 19, uh, that's Luke's account of the triumphal entry, it records there that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. When they were saying these things like Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus in response in that passage says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And he offers a similar reply here. He says, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants... You, you, Lord, have called forth 
your praise. Now, what this is taken from is from Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, it says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a beautiful psalm of worship and praise. But who is being praised here? Who is being worshipped here? I invite a response. Maybe it's too easy that you're afraid to say it. It's God. It's God who's being praised here. Now notice then, what Jesus is doing here and saying that the songs of these children are appropriate, what he's doing here and saying that they're appropriate is basically making a not-so-subtle claim that he is divine in his identity, that he is God incarnate, that he is worthy of the worship and praise that is given in Psalm 8. Now you should know the tables that Jesus overturned did not remain on their sides. Their operators set them back up and ran their market for the remainder of that week. And for the next 40 years or so before the temple was destroyed. Likewise, the disabled were once again forbidden to enter. A reality um, that's in, incidentally mentioned later on in the book of Acts when Peter and John heal lame man at an outer gate of the temple. So what was Jesus doing here? Jesus was offering a sign. While everyone else was preoccupied by the hubbub of the temple market, Jesus reminded everyone that they were missing the point. The temple was built so people could worship God. Not just Jewish people, but people from all nations. Money was clanging in the space God had invited the Gentiles to be praying. Confronting them like he did, he revealed himself to be that refiner's fire, to be that launderer's soap, to be that Lord who has come into his temple to cleanse and restore just as the prophet Malachi foretold. The lame and the blind no longer defiled any divisions of holiness because he could heal what was once divided. He was making the broken whole. In all of this, he was showing himself to be the promised Messiah, the priest on his throne. This is all building up to the mystery that will be revealed in his death on the cross and his resurrection, which follows. 
is the mystery that we who were once divided are now brought together in Jesus Christ by faith. The Apostle Paul tells it like this in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God began his mission of redemption with Abraham, but his goal was always the world's. His goal was always to see people from all walks of life be restored and joined together in worshiping Him. Jesus has made the universal church the new temple of God. The error Jesus confronts here continues to confront us today. Church life can get busy but we should never forget the point of everything. We are here to worship God. We are here to help our neighbors worship God. We don't lock out broken people, the people struggling with sin, because this is the very place Christ wants to make them whole. We emphasize building our church community. But, we must be careful not to worship community. We don't worship community, but we are a community of worship. A community that spurs each other to worship God with every breath that He gives us. If we forget worship, we forget our very purpose. But make no mistake, He will be praised even if we forget. Even if we are silent, the stones will cry out. The children will sing. Because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is on the throne. Let us pray. Dear Father, we praise You for Your goodness that all along Your intent has been to bring us back to Yourself, to bring all human beings before You. And Father, we understand the necessity of Your revelation across the years and making clear the, the divide that lays between us and you. But Father, we also understand and give thanks that you did not let that divide stand, but that you have covered it in Jesus Christ. So that all may come before you, not only the Jewish people, but all non-Jews, all people who are broken, who are sinful,
who are lost, Father. All of us are called to You because You love us all and desire to restore us to our place as Your priests, as those who worship You. And so, Father, we pray that as a local church here, we would be faithful to that calling. That we would not forget that our purpose is to worship You and to bring others to know You and worship You as well. Purify us, Father, and so far as we depart from this purpose. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you.